Uh, we'll get back to Isaiah in a minute, but uh, just to kind of set the theme, brothers and sisters, for where we're headed next, go to Second Chronicles chapter 16. As we'll be taking lessons or gleanings from the prophet Isaiah, but to kind of set the theme, if you go to Second Chronicles chapter 16, please. The Lord had to say this to King Asa. And I just want to read one verse here as you go to 2 Chronicles 16. And that would be verse 9. 2 Chronicles 16 and verse 9, please. 16, 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Herein thou hast done foolishly, therefore from henceforth thou shalt have wars, he added to the king. The eyes of the Lord making a search on planet earth among his people. Say, so what's he looking for? Who's going to win the ball games today? Who's going to make the most money? Things that men look for. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. God wants to show his strength, but he needs a heart that's perfect, that is completely resting upon him, not looking to self or salvation in any of its phases or to man, but willing to look unto God alone. And in that weakness and confidence and trust in God, God says, I want to show my power but I can't do it when you get in the way. I need a heart that's perfect. And he's looking for a heart that he will find that will totally rest on him so he can show his strength. You know, as Paul would write in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 12, 10, for when I am weak, then am I strong. Strength comes through weakness. The reason I want to take you to Isaiah is there's two, two kings we're going to look at in a comparison study in this session. One had a perfect heart toward God and saw the power of God. The other man had confidence in the world and in his thinking and in his ability to hire and negotiate and solve his problems. Both men were kings of Judah. Uh, if you go to Isaiah 1 for a minute, Isaiah chapter 1, back to Isaiah, this time chapter 1. Isaiah 1 and verse 1, it gives you a timing of Isaiah's prophecy here. And looking at Isaiah 1 and verse 1, the vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So he prophesied through four administration of, of Jerusalem's kings. But the two I'd like to look at are the last two on the list. Ahaz and Hezekiah, king of kings of Judah. Ahaz was the daddy or father of Hezekiah. And as we look at Ahaz, and he's faced as a king with where will be his confidence in political salvation as enemies are about to attack, attack where will he go for power and strength to survive in life? And his son, Hezekiah, as we've already read a little bit, will be faced with similar decisions when he's about to be attacked. And where will he go? 
you will see that in the son, Hezekiah, God found a perfect heart, one totally looking to him and not himself or man. And his father, he found a heart that looked to himself and to the world around him. One man came to a disaster. The other man knew of the power of God. Hezekiah, the negative king, the father here, or excuse me, Ahaz, the negative king, who's the father, Hezekiah, the positive king. So let's do a little comparison study to help us understand what does it mean to have a heart fully looking to God and we'll learn what it doesn't mean also so we can be encouraged in the search of God throughout the whole earth to find a perfect heart so he can show forth his strength on behalf of them whose heart is toward him. Having said that, let's go to Isaiah 36. To Hez we'll start with Hezekiah for a few minutes. Going to Isaiah chapter 36. And as you go to Isaiah 36, we're in that same scenario of this threatening attack that we read about a little bit in our last session of Assyria and their king Sennacherib. But now reading some verses we didn't read when it first began, taking you to Isaiah 36 and verse 4. Isaiah 36 and verse 4. And Rabshika, or some will have the Rabshika, said unto them, Say ye now to Hezekiah, thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, what confidence is this wherein thou trustest? You tell Hezekiah, where's your, where's your trust? Where does your confidence lie? Will it lie, as Julie Andrews sang, Julie Andrews in the sound of music, I got confidence in me. Gets a lot of people through, huh? Where, where is the confidence here? To, where is your confidence? Where is your trust? And to intimidate him, he says in verse 5, I say, sayest thou, but they are but vain words. I have counsel and strength for war. Now on whom dost thou trust? Thou rebellest against me. He refused to give tribute, refused to surrender. Uh, you think you can marshal up an army? Who are you trusting to defeat the number one power, the undefeated team? Look at verse 6. Lo, thou trustest in this staff of this broken reed on Egypt, whereon if a man lean it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that trust in him. If you're thinking Pharaoh's going to align with you and going to help you, it's just like leaning on a broken reed and it'll just pierce you. I mean, it's, it's not going to help you, it's going to hurt you. Intimidation. Verse 7. But if thou say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places, whose altars Hezekiah had taken away, and said to Judah and to Jerusalem, Ye shall worship before this altar? You trust in the Lord? And Rabshika, not understanding the ways of God, says, oh, Hezekiah has offended him. All those altars to God, he just took them away. Because there was only one place for the Jews to come and worship, and that was the Jerusalem, the God, city of God has chosen. But he looked at God as being upset, and he said, He's not going to help you. And, and then further, if you look further here, look at verse 14 of chapter 36. Verse 14. Thus saith the king, Let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you. You think you're going to get out of this one? Hezekiah and his talk about God is not going to work. Verse 15. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. It's nothing but a vain pep talk that you're not going to be delivered to us. Don't fall for this thing about faith in God. He'll get you through life. You don't want to listen to that. Look at verse 18. 
Verse 18, Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered uh, his hand out of the hand of the king of Assyria? You can listen to his words, but look at the results. We're undefeated. Every king said they, weren't going, to be, they were going to be delivered. So don't fall for the lie that his God is able to deliver you. Uh, we're, we're unbeatable. And so faced with the pressures of political salvation, you know what Hezekiah does? We talked about it a little bit, but look at chapter 37, the opening part that we didn't look at. Isaiah 37 and verse 1. And it came to pass when King Hezekiah heard it, that he rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, unto Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. Goes into the house of God, humbles himself. All his administration is dressed in sackcloth. We're nothing. We don't have any power. And they get a hold of the man of God, the prophet, who has the word of God. Verse 3. And they said unto him, Thus saith Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble, and of rebuke, and of blasphemy. For the children are come to birth, and there is not strength to bring forth. It may be the Lord thy God will hear the words of Rabshika, whom the king of Assyria his master has sent to reproach the living God, and will reprove the words which the Lord thy God hath heard. Wherefore, lift up thy prayer for the remnant that is left. In humility, he calls for the word of God and says, Isaiah, pray to God. He's our only hope. We, we don't have any. We, we can't beat him. But maybe God will take this personal. And, and as we read later, and I'll just reread a little bit from the first session, going into chapter 37, he says in verse 18, chapter 37 and verse 18, of a truth, the Lord, the king of Assyria, have laid waste all the nations in their countries. He did exactly. He's not lying. He, he, he has results. But he's never come up against a true God. <laughs> Look at verse 20. Now therefore, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord, even thou only. Show thy power. Not so much, save, not so much saving us here, but they'll know, they'll know there's, there's the true God. And he, he spreads that letter before God. He looks to God. And I'll just repeat it. Uh, read one more verse what happened. Look at verse 36 in chapter 37. The verse 36 again. Then the angel of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and fourscore and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Hezekiah not looking at an army, not looking at world alliances, him humbling himself, calling for the prophet of God to give the word of God. He gives the word of God. He believes it. And one angel, the power of God, saves Israel from a military defeat and kills 185,000 Assyrians. He knew something of the power of God. His heart was resting. Confidence in God. Such was Hezekiah the son. We'll have more to say about him a little later, Lord willing. But I want to switch to his father now, Ahaz, to show you a man, and though he was king and the leader of the people, he did not have confidence in God to save him politically and in the affairs of life. He would look to other sources, and it turned out to be a disaster. Let's go to Isaiah 7, to learn a lesson of contrast. And look at the life of Ahaz here, the father. Sometimes sons do better than their heritage. You look at Isaiah chapter 7 now, and 
Ahaz as king and Isaiah will be in the picture again. You, you look at verse 1, Isaiah 7 and verse 1. And it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remeliah, kings of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. So there's an alliance of the Syrian king and the northern Israeli king, and they come down to defeat the city of God, but they're, they're, not, they're not having much success. Uh, they, they don't lose, but they don't win either. But it put fear into the house of uh, Ahaz, and look at verse 2. And it was told the house of David, saying, that would be the Ahaz's line, the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim, and his heart was moved, and the heart of his people, as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. He heard there's a double alliance. The two nations now are preparing to battle, and he's shaken. How can we defeat two nations? And his heart is moved. Well, the message is to, to, to tell the king this. Look at verse 4. Verse 4. And say unto him, Take heed and be quiet. Fear not, neither be fainthearted. For the two tails of these smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin with Syria and the son of Remelia. He, he says, You can just be quiet. God says, I'll do this for you. I'll, de I'll preserve Jerusalem. I'll defeat them. Look at verse 5. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remelia have taken evil counsel against these, saying, verse 6, Let us go up against Judah and vex it, and let us make a breach therein for us, and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tobiel. Oh, they want to do more than defeat. They want to put a new administration in. And bring the house of David to an end, which God had promised would last forever. And bring Jerusalem, the city of God, to an end, and replace Ahaz with a new king. He would come to an end. And you tell him that's not going to happen, all right? That's what you tell him. Look at, look at verse 7, Isaiah was to tell him. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. It's not going to happen. God gave him his word, his promise, for his own promise's sake. Verse 8, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within three score and five years shall Ethiopia be broken, that it be not a people. All these people scaring you, they won't exist as a people in 65 years. Verse 9. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If ye will not believe, surely ye shall not be established. I've given you my word, but it's going to require your faith. And if you don't believe, Ahaz, you won't be established. Will you trust me that you won't lose in this? I have given you my word, and if you don't believe, you won't be established. Ahaz must have demonstrated carelessness that he wasn't impressed with the message. For look what happens next in verse 10. Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God, and ask it either in the depth or in the height above. You know, if you're having doubts, maybe it's a hard thing to believe. It looks impossible that you can survive this. But I'll show you my power. I'll ask it for in the heaven or down below. Ask me a sign. And here's Ahaz's answer in verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. At first glance, this sounds like a good answer. You know, we might say, somebody says, is Jesus Christ Lord? Ask God if he's a sign if Jesus Christ is Lord. I'll say, I don't need a sign. He said he's Lord. 
I don't need to be proven. He's risen from the dead. I need no more signs. I trust God's word, so don't give me another miracle. I know the truth. That's not what he's saying here. That's not what he's saying. What his attitude is, is I could care less. There's probably no God anyway, and ask for a sign of somebody who, you know, what will be a sign when there's not a God to give the sign? Uh, look what happens next year, and you'll see this come across. L look at verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. And he said, verse 13, Hear not ye now, O house of David. It is a small thing for ye to weary men, but will ye weary my God also? It wasn't faith here. In other words, I don't know if you've ever dealt with somebody, maybe they're a drunkard or whatever, and uh, they promise, I, I won't get drunk again, I won't beat, I won't steal money, I'll never do it again until the next time when they do it. And after 20, 30 times of this going back to sin, drugs, whatever it is, after all their promises, they say, hey, you've got to believe me. You know, you, you don't, don't turn me in. Uh, I, put up my, I cross my heart. Here's my, shake my hand. And you'll say, save your breath. Why, why are you weary? I'm not going to use the energy to shake your hand. It's meaningless. And that was a, he's wearying God. Well, I'm going to ask for a sign. There's not even a God probably who can do a sign. He's not a, why would I ask for something that's impossible? And he had no faith. He wearied God. And God said, well, God's going to give you a sign anyway. <laughs> the house of David will survive. You look here, and it's a very big sign. We look at verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. God with us. <laughs> a virgin's going to have a baby. Turned out to be Jesus, didn't it? The seed of David, the son of David, who will be king of kings and lord of lords. I'll give you a sign. A woman who's never known a man is going to have a baby someday. That baby will be God. He'll be with you. He'll be the answer. Gave him a sign he didn't ask for, a very big sign that has implications for the future of this world. Well, he didn't believe it, but look at verse 17 of Isaiah 7. Verse 17. The Lord shall bring upon thee and upon thy people and upon thy father's house days that have not come, from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, even the king of Assyria. You're going to have problems now. You don't have faith in me. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall hiss for the fly that is in the uttermost parts of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria and so on. And so there's a promise rather than a blessing of judgment for Ahaz, a man who wouldn't have faith in God. Now we get more details. You say the man didn't care if he got attacked. Of course he cared. He didn't believe God could do it. He did not have a heart with confidence in God to get him through life. I'll tell you what the man did. We have to go to other scriptures. Go to 2 Kings 16, please. More commentary on this event with Ahaz. 2 Kings 16, please. Let's see what he did. Verse 1 of uh, 2 Kings 16, this is a, the life of the king, so you'll get some information about Ahaz here. 2 Kings 16 and verse 1. 16 1, 2 Kings. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. So Ahaz is in the, the king. Verse 2. 20 years old was Ahaz when he began to reign, and reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord, his God, like David his father. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel, etc. The commentary was he didn't do right in the eyes of God. 
Maybe he was popular among the people, I don't know. But in the eyes of God, he didn't do right. What are the, some of the things in his life that God would give him this report card he did not do right in the eyes of the Lord? Well, look at verse 6. Look at verse 6, chapter 16. Then Razan, king of Syria, and Pekah, king of Ramilia, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to war, and they could not besiege Ahaz, but could not overcome him. We just read about that. This alliance came. They weren't defeated, but they didn't win either. But, but what did he do? Well, we weren't told it in Isaiah 7. We're just told he didn't look to God, but he did look somewhere. Look, look at verse 6. At that time, Razan, king of Syria, recovered Elath to Syria and drove the Jews from Elath, and the Syrians came to Elath and dwelt there unto this day. So, verse 7, Ahaz sent messengers to Talgath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am thy servant and thy son. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Syria and out of the hand of the king of Israel, which rise up against me. He went to a worldly, ungodly power, the king of Assyria of those days, and says, hey, will you be in an alliance with me? Will you help me? Will you join my forces? Come and save me. Not looking to God to save him politically and in life, but looking to man, looking to the world. It's the opposite of his father who spread the letter before God and saw the power of God. This man's not going to see it because his heart isn't perfect toward God. He looks to the world around him to get him out of his problems. What an insult to God. Well, he had to do something. How's he going to get the king of Assyria to join him? He's going to have to pay him, bribe him, hire him. So look what he does in verse 8. And Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent for the, a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria hearkened unto him. For the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it and carried the people of it captive to Ker and slew Rezin. And there were some results. He just devalued the house of God. Walks in the house of God, the gold and silver that were offered to God there and were for the beauty of the Lord. He cheapened and brought down the glory of the house of God to find worldly favor. And doesn't have a heart for God's house and God's glory. But he'll look to man and he devalues the house of the living God and he hires this king, and initially there's some successful results. They so say, it must be all right. That wasn't all right. Now, when that happens, when you see people without confidence in God, it's usually a package. It's usually not the only mistake they make. Their whole mindset is that they don't really have fear for God and his ways. And it will come through in a hundred different ways. It's going to show you what else this king did. You find somebody without a heart for God, and you'll find more than one problem. All right? And here it comes. Look what else he does here in verse 10. 2 Kings 16, verse 10. And King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Telgath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and saw an altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Urijah the priest the fashion of the altar and the pattern of it according to all the workmanship thereof. So Tilgath-Pileser came through for him, and he goes to meet him, have a friendly meeting, and he's at his religion, and he's at his church, as we'd say today. He sees an altar. Well, it's a very big altar, much bigger than the one he had in Jerusalem at the house of God. And he's impressed with this pagan altar. So what he does, he gets a pattern, a blueprint of it, and he sends it back to the priest in Jerusalem. He says, I want you to make one like they have here. Must bring them good luck, you know, they win the battle, whatever. Verse 11. 
And Urijah the priest built an altar according to all that the king Ahaz had sent from Damascus to Urijah the priest and made it against king Ahaz came from Damascus. Now, Israel already had an altar designed by God where those burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins were to be brought. He already had an altar. But he thinks that the worldly altar will get better results for it. He just saw results. So let's take the pattern of the way they worship God and let, let's bring that altar to Jerusalem. Now, there's a problem here, and so you can appreciate this problem. I'm going to come back and continue the story, Lord willing, in a couple minutes. But you need to see this, I think. So go to 1 Chronicles chapter 28. Let's just break the story off for a minute and take a commercial break, so to speak. And go to 1 Chronicles chapter 28. That temple at Jerusalem that he's tampering with its altar, you need to understand how it was designed. You're going to see a principle. Whenever God has his house on earth, God has a pattern how it should be. Because it's God's house. I would think if you built a house, you'd have a pattern. Wouldn't you? And if you came to check out your pattern, the swimming pool is to be over here as the builder's building it. You say, I don't see a hole for the swimming pool. No, no. He says, here's a little apartment for an in-law apartment for the mother-in-law. You can say, well, that's not the pattern I gave you. <laughs> if you want to build that for your house, that's fine. But this is my house. Wherever God dwells on earth in a house, physically or spiritually, he has a pattern the way he wants it done. Re remember the uh, tabernacle, that tent? Exodus 25, 40. See that thou make all things according to their pattern, which was showed thee in the mount. Moses wasn't to use his creative imagination. It was God's house. He was to follow God's way. Someday there'll be a future millennial temple in the kingdom of God. And Ezekiel 43.10 says, Thou shalt measure the pattern. And now we're talking about Solomon's temple here that Ahaz is tampering with. And you know, it was designed not by Solomon. He just was the builder. He followed the pattern of God. And that's why I have you in 1 Chronicles 28. Look what David does to his son Solomon, who was going to build this temple of God. Look, look at verse 11. 1 Chronicles 28 and verse 11. Then David gave to Solomon his son the pattern of the porch and of the houses thereof, and the treasuries thereof, of the upper chambers thereof, of the inner parlors thereof, and of the place of the mercy seat. Solomon, though he was a builder, will not use creative imagination. His father hands him the pattern. Where did David get it? Verse 12. And the pattern of all that he had by the spirit of the courts of the house of the Lord, and of the chambers round about, and all the treasuries of the house of God, and the treasuries of the dedicated things. The spirit had revealed to David how God wanted this house to be built. He handed it to Solomon. Look how he did it. Look at verse 18 of 1 Chronicles 28. Verse 18. And for the altar of incense, refined gold by weight, and gold for the pattern of the chariot of the cherubim that spread out their wings and covered the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Now, verse 19. All this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me even all the works of this pattern. It was in writing. And the Lord made him understand. He just handed the blueprint to his son. He said, follow the blueprint. Why should he? Look at 29.1 of 1 Chronicles. Look at 
Furthermore, David the king said unto all the congregation, Solomon, my son, whom God alone, alone God hath chosen, is yet young and tender, and the work is great, for the palace is not for man, but for the Lord God. Speaking of God's throne, the temple, the, the palace is not for man, but for the Lord God. The house of God is never for you, it's for God. Do you think the New Testament church has a pattern? The house of God, which is the church of the living God. 1 Timothy 3.15. We're the house of God, the spiritual house. And when you get to 1 Corinthians, and Paul the apostle is writing about the order in the church. He speaks about head covering for women at certain times, lack of head covering for men at certain times. He uh, speaks about the Lord's Supper and the focus on the Lord Jesus and his death till he come. He speaks about gifts and the plurality of gifts in an interactive church meeting among the brothers while the sisters are silent, not everywhere, but in the church. He, he speaks of all this order. And in that context, he says in 1 Corinthians 14.37, If any man among you think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you, it's written, 1 Corinthians 14, are the commandments of the Lord. Not to be saved by, but to worship and serve by. We have commandments of the Lord. We have an order or a pattern. Wherever God has a house on earth, you'll see a pattern. And so Solomon's temple had a pattern. The size of the altar, where it would be, and so on. But Ahaz, with no confidence in God, doesn't have this trust in God. Is a whole package thing. Doesn't have any fear of changing the house of God. Now, that takes us back to our story in 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Kings 16. Back to where we were. When he, when he uh, copied this altar of the world where it seemed to have more success than the Jewish altar, and uh, says, let's make that one in the house of God. And so the Uriah the priest does. So we're back here in chapter 16 of uh, Kings here, 2 Kings. And we'll pick up where we left off here. And look, if you would, at verse 13, or verse 12. Verse 12 of 2 Kings 16. 2 Kings 16, verse 12. And when the king was come from Damascus, the king saw the altar. And the king approached the altar and offered thereon. Sees this new altar, and he offers. Well, he's going to offer to God, but it's not God's way. You've got to do God's work in God's way, by the way. Verse 13. And he burned his burnt offering and his meat offering and poured his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his peace offering upon the altar. And he brought also the brazen altar, which was before the Lord, from the forefront of the house, from between the altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the altar. So here's the brazen altar, the pattern of God, which was before the Lord, that God had designed. He said, well, we're not going to scrap it. That would be too radical. He replaces it with the worldly altar, and he doesn't do away with it. That would be too radical. He puts it over on the north side from the forefront of the Lord. You know, when you want to pray to God, you have a request, we'll go there. But that's not where the worship will be. Uh, look, what, look what he says next. He moves God out of the forefront. And so it goes on to say here in verse 16. Uh, now we're at chapter 16, verse 15. And King Ahaz commanded Uriah to priest saying upon the great altar, this is the worldly altar. The great altar burned the morning burnt offering, the evening meat offering, and the king's burnt sacrifice and his meat offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their meat offering and their drink offerings and sprinkle upon it the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice and the brazen altar shall be for me to inquire by. Yes, I'll use this for my personal prayer life. I don't do away with it completely. But the great worship will happen at the great altar, not the 
brazen altar that had been moved from the forefront. Is it possible in the church of God today to take things that are for God like the Lord's Supper? So we'll still worship God. We'll have praise teams and worship teams. But, but this simple thing of remembering him and showing him his death, it, once a month, once a year at night, we just move it out of the, you know, it's over here. We're not going to say it, you never do it. But there's better ways to do it. And we see the world doing it. We say, look how many people they get in the results. Huh? You, you can think for this on yourself. Uh, no confidence in God. It was a package. Look what else he did in verse 17. 2 Kings 16, verse 17. And King Ahaz cut off the borders of the bases and removed the laver from off them and took down the sea off the brazen oxen that were under it and put upon it a pavement of stones. This water laver was so big in Solomon's temple, it was called a sea. There was so much water in it. It's where the priests would stop to cleanse the dirt off their hands and feet before they would serve God in the holy place. It's a place of cleansing of the dirt. He took it off the oxen because he used that brass, you know, to buy off King the king of Assyria, he devalued the house of God. And so he put it lower to the ground. You know what that tells me? That God's article of personal cleansing, he lowered the standards. Can that be done today in the church? Well, we want people. So God speaks of holiness and righteousness and dealing with sin. But if we say about these things too much, they're not going to come in. So we'll show love and grace. And, you know, we, we won't go for wholesale sin. But we'll just reduce the way we handle it here. And, and we lower the cleansing standards. Huh? That's what he did. Look what else he did in verse 18. And the covert, the covering, for the Sabbath that they had built in the house, and the king's entry without turned he from the house of the Lord for the king of Assyria. So he needed some more. So this, this, this pavilion he had when he would come to the house of the Lord to kind of shade him as he did his worshiping. I don't plan to go to the house of the Lord that much anymore. Uh, I'll just do away with that. You know, I won't be there all the time. And so he started to devalue things connected with the house of God. He didn't have a heart perfect toward God. Further on this, if you'll go to 2 Chronicles 28, and the package gets bigger. 2 Chronicles chapter 28. Still looking at Ahaz, how not to do it. 2 Chronicles 28, the chronicle commentary on Ahaz. And again, I'll show you verse 1, 2 Chronicles 28 and verse 1. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, but he did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord like David his father. And we already read that. We read it again. Now, look at some of these things which was not right. If you go to verse 16 of chapter 28, life of Ahaz, 2 Chronicles 28 and verse 16. At that time did King Ahaz send unto the kings of Assyria to help him. We learned about that, didn't we? For again the Edomites had come and smitten Judah and carried away captives. There was defeat all around him. The Philistines also had invaded the cities of the low country and of the south of Judah and had taken Bethshemesh, Adjelon, Gedoth, Shuko, with the villages thereof, and Timnah, with the villages thereof, Gimzo, and the villages thereof, and they dwelt there. All around Jerusalem, Jewish villages were falling. So, so he hires the, the world to help him. He, he doesn't do what Hezekiah did and spreads it before God. He says, God, if you don't help, we lost, but if you help, we will recover. A heart looking to God. Look, look, look here at verse 19. For the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he made Judah naked and transgressed sore against the Lord. Their, their problems were because he wasn't obeying. And he was creating his own problems, but he couldn't see it. 
Look at verse 20. And Telgoth Pelsner, king of Assyria, came unto him and distressed him and strengthened him not. The world helped him earlier, but he failed him later. You think the answer's in the world? You might get a quick success. It'll come back to bite you. He didn't help him in the long run. Look at verse 21. For Ahaz took away a portion of the house of the Lord out of the house of the king and the princes and gave it unto the king of Assyria, but he helped him not. Buy in the world, but he never was a true help to him. It's only God that can bring us through. God is my salvation. Look at verse 22. And in the time of his distress did he trespass yet more against the Lord. This is that king Ahaz. For he sacrificed unto the gods of Damascus, which smote him. And he said, Because the gods of the king of Syria helped them, therefore I will sacrifice to them, but they may help me. But they were his ruin of him and all of Israel. He looked at whatever brought results. If this works, then we've got to bring it here. And rather than helping the people of God, it hurt the people of God. Where do you get your ideas for the church? From the world or from God? Well, we see examples here. Look at verse 24. 28, 24. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God. Now watch. And shut up the doors of the house of the Lord and made altars in every corner of Jerusalem. And in every several city of Judah he made high places to burn incense unto other gods and provoked to anger the Lord God of his fathers. You have a heart that's not looking for God. It will take you further and further away from God. Never mind just taking pieces out and changing the altar. Now he shuts the doors. He has taken so much out of it. He closes the door at the house of God, and he builds these substitutes all throughout the land, these convenient altars. They won't have to go 20, 30 miles. They can now go maybe a half a mile from their village, and there'll be an altar to God, but soon it evolved into other gods. And people say, well, there's other gods. And the whole nation became corrupt. Where a heart will take you that's not looking to God. He shut the doors of the house of God, and eventually he died. I'm going to close going back to his son, Hezekiah. This man who had a heart perfect toward God. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. And now his son comes to power and God finds a heart looking to him. And Hezekiah and the people of God will again know the power of God in their weakness. They'll know God's strength. So here comes the son not walking in the heritage of his father. You look at chapter 29 of Second Chronicles and verse 1. 2 Chronicles 29 and verse 1, after Ahaz died in verse 27 of the prior chapter. 29.1, Hezekiah began to reign when he was five and twenty years old, a 25-year-old young man. And he reigned nine and twenty years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. Now here's God's commentary on him in verse 2. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. Different report card for him. He did that which was right. Well, what would constitute that that pleased God? Verse 3. Look at his, one of his first official acts as king. Verse 3. He, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Not build his own house and, and refurbished a palace. He had a heart for God's glory where God dwelt. And he went back to the house of God. His father shut the doors. Thank God he didn't follow the traditions of his father. He reopened them with his authority. And he began to repair them so people would have access in worshiping the true God. Look at verse 4. 
and brought in the priests, the Levites, and gathered them together into the east street, and said unto them, Hear me, ye Levites, sanctify now yourselves, and sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers, and carry forth the filthiness out of the holy place. You know, let, Let's clean house. All this filthiness that has come in. He has a heart for the house of God and the habitation of God. Without reading the whole story, you know what he restores? Worship at the true altar of God. He gets back to the pattern, that brazen altar that was designed by Solomon, not the world's altar, and puts it back in the forefront where it belonged, where people would bring the sacrifices. You'll see that in verse 18, chapter 29 and verse 18. Then they went in Hezekiah king and said, then they went in to Hezekiah the king and said, we have cleansed all the house of the Lord and the altar of burnt offering." with all the vessels thereof, and the showbread table, with all the vessels thereof. We've restored the altar, as well as other things. Verse 19, Moreover, all the vessels which King Ahaz in his reign did cast away, and his transgression have we prepared and sanctified, and behold, they are before the altar of the Lord, not the great altar of the world, not the world's way of doing it, of worshiping God's way, the pattern. We've brought it back. You look here at verse 21, see it again. 28, 29, 21. And they brought seven bullocks and seven rams and seven lambs and seven he goats for a sin offering for the kingdom and for the sanctuary and for Judah. And he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. A man who wanted to do God's work in God's way. A lot of people do God's work today, but they don't have a heart to do it God's way. Want to do God's work in God's way. He's looking for that so he can show himself strong. Well, it says it again here about the altar in verse 22. So they killed the bullocks, and the priest received the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. Likewise, when they had killed the rams, they sprinkled the blood upon the altar. They killed also the lambs, and they sprinkled the blood upon the altar. I think we're getting the message, aren't we? The altar is back where it should be, and God's work is being done in God's way. I'm skipping some verses. But I just want to show, show you in these closing comments what governed Hezekiah. Did he get his ideas in his own mind? Did he go to the world for their help and say, look how they do it. They have success. Well, let's just copy them and send it back to the house of God. And we can cut this out and we can lower this and we can No, he had the fear of the Lord. He trusted God. And where did he get his guidance? Well, look at chapter 30. 2 Chronicles chapter 30 and verse 6. Second, make it verse 5. 2 Chronicles 30 and verse 5, please. So they established a decree to make, a procl make proclamation throughout all Israel, from Beersheba even to Dan, that they should come to keep the Passover unto the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem, for they had not done it of a long time in such sort as it was written. It would go back to what was written in the Word of God and follow God's wisdom, God's Word, not His ideas of what works out there in the world's ideas. You'll see that again in verse 12 of chapter 30. Look at verse 12 of chapter 30. And in Judah the hand of God was to give them one heart to do the commandment of the king and of the princes by the word of the Lord. They were going by the word of the Lord and to please God it was right in his eyes. That's confidence in God when you say, I don't lean to my own wisdom, I do it your way. It might not make sense, might not get as many people, might not have the results, but I trust you. I trust you. And he did it God's way. God's work in God's way. Uh, looking further here, go to chapter 31. You'll see something similar in verse 3. 
chapter 31 of uh, 2 Chronicles, looking at verse 3. He appointed also the king's portion of his substance for the burnt offering, to wit, for the morning and evening burnt offerings, and the burnt offerings for the Sabbaths, and for the new moons, and for the set feasts, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every little detail. He would say, Here, here's what God says. You know, let's see what he says. And God's house was being done God's way. In fact, a kind of a summary of the man's revival is given in the last verse of chapter 31. Look, look at 21, verse 21 of chapter 31. And in every work that he began in the service of the house of God and in the law and in the commandments to seek his God, he did it with all his heart and prospered. Went by his commandments, did it with all his heart, put his heart toward God, looked to God not only in political salvation and governing of the house of God in personal salvation, and you see the record of him knowing something of the power of God. And he did it with all his heart. He went by the wisdom of God as it is written. And as I close, you might say, well, that's wonderful. That's the Old Testament. We don't, we, we don't go by legalism today. We, 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 go, we have the Spirit, and so you do. But the Spirit of God's role is to reveal the Word of God to you. The Word that I have spoken unto you, the words that I have spoken unto you, they are Spirit and they are life. And, and we still have a book in the New Testament. When the Lord Jesus would write to his seven churches recorded in Revelation 2 and 3, seven local Christian churches, you know how he communicated? He told John in, in Revelation 1.11, John, the things thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches. We have a book today. It's called the New Testament, huh? connected with the Old Testament, the Word of God. Again, I remind you of a verse I already quoted in 1 Corinthians 14.37, where Paul said concerning the church, the things that I write unto you, it's a book, are the commandments of the Lord. May God help you and I to, to get to the book, have confidence in God. Don't imitate Ahaz. But look at some examples in like Hezekiah. And through looking to the strength of your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, He not only saves you from hell, He'll not only save the world someday, He brings you through life. He's your shepherd. And He's able to bring you through life. And I know there's battles. I know it's difficult. I know there's the world, the flesh, and the devil. But don't be afraid of the book. It's not legalism. It's love, if you take it in context. And put confidence in Him, not your own understanding. And the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking to show Himself strong, on behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. God encourage you. Tomorrow, Lord willing, we'll be back to Isaiah to get some more lessons from Isaiah if the Lord tarries in the morning and in the evening. But that'll close tonight out. And uh, what I think I'll do, I've been talking an awful long time. Our brother Joshua has some announcements to make. And uh, there needs to be prayer, not only for the word of God, but for thanks for the food that's right in front of us in a couple minutes, before us, I should say. So would a brother just close this meeting in blessing, give thanks for the food, since I've been doing a lot of talking, and whoever's led, brothers, and then Brother Joshua will uh, give announcements. Thank you.